G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to the Footyology Podcast. This is our round seven review recorded not long at all after the conclusion of what was a really entertaining weekend of footy. Some big statements made by some power clubs, some questions answered, others falling into further disrepair some surprises, some controversy, some thrillers, uh, some high scores. This was around with the lot, Fanny. What did you make of it all? Well, yeah, I know the AFL love their themed rounds, and I reckon this was redemption round for quite a few teams. When you think of the turnaround for, say, Sydney, St Kilda, West Coast Eagles, Carlton, a lot of teams got on the bandwagon bar one notable... Victorian club by the name of Collingwood. Maybe theirs comes next week. Well, there'll be uh, plenty of talk about them. Well, I can tell you about one organisation that never needs to redeem itself, Fiony, because they, for 80-odd years, have been at the very top of their game. That game is hamburgers, and no one does it better than the mob you're about to tell all our listeners about. Nobody does it better. Who sung that song, Rowan? Uh, Carly Simon, don't remind me of it. It was a shocker. It was, but an app description maybe could be used to advantage in an ad campaign for our friends at Andrews Hamburgers because nobody does it better at 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. Thank you, Mr Hooker. Don't you remember that ad? LJ Hooker. No, well, Fanny, I wasn't calling you a gigawo. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, well... We'll talk about Hooker, Kale, shortly. But I'll tell you what, I'm confident in saying nobody does it better, Rowan, and you know why? Why? Because we get a lot of feedback in the world of podcasting. We are critical and we cop criticism. We have never, I've certainly not been made aware of anybody that has been let down going to Andrew's Hamburgers on our advice. Everybody loves it. They do, and uh, we have been in a fortunate position of spreading the gospel, as we do when it comes to home renovations. I'm equally confident saying this, that the top quality eye for design has been never, never questioned for West Point Properties and Nick Spartels. After all, Dyson Heppel has a West Point property house. So does Scott Pendlebury, Mike Sheehan. Maybe you, Rowan. I know you're in the market. They're beautiful houses. Why not? West Point Properties, proud sponsors of Footyology, as are Stats Insider, the leading sports data analysts in the caper. They uh, don't just talk AFL footy. They talk about 15 sports across the globe. They project every event 10,000 times so you can get the most searingly accurate take on what will happen and all this stuff on their website is free. So check it out. Some real quality writing on there too. 
from the likes of James Rosewarn. I even bob up occasionally with a piece. So check it out. It's all free to use. Statsinsider.com.au. All right, we had a big weekend of footy. Heaps to talk about. Let's get straight into it. On Footyology, wrap around. Friday night at the MCG. What a big game this was. The challenges up against the champs. Who would prevail? Well, for half a game, it looked like uh, very much the challenges. But those champs certainly flexed their muscles with full effect in the second half and came away with, in the end, a really impressive win. Richmond defeating the Western Bulldogs by 22 points. The final scores, Richmond 11-11-77, defeating the Doggies 7-13. Inaccurate. 55. The goal kickers for the Tigers. Lynch, three. What a game he played. Three goals to Bolton. Singles to Arts, Rewalt, Graham, Baker and Hooley. For the Western Bulldogs, three to Aaron Norton, playing a bit of a lone hand up there. Singles to Scott, Bruce, Smith, Shackey. Well, finally for half a game, uh, the Doggies certainly held sway, though. You couldn't help but feel, though, I reckon that Richmond had had their opportunities and it wouldn't take that much for them to work their way back into the game. 2-8 at halftime. Pivotal moment to Marcus Bontempelli missing a, a bit of a soda right on the halftime siren, which would have given the Bulldogs a four-goal lead. And uh, that largesse um, proved costly because the Tigers, right from the time the second half began, came charging at it and in the end won going away to reassert their authority as the undisputed heavyweight of the competition. And some of us would say definitely still the premiership favourite in 2021. How do you see it? You know, it does remind me of the preliminary final of 2019, Rowan, that game against Geelong when Geelong went into the halftime break with a four-goal advantage thereabouts and actually had a chance straight after the break to go five goals ahead. And Geelong supporters lamented and, and sort of thought potentially that could have been the, the goal to break the Camels back early in the third quarter. Likewise, could Bontempelli's goal have created the momentum and the break needed to do Richmond away? You know what? That really underestimates the strength of this Camels back. It's a bloody strong back. And I don't think an extra goal would have made much difference. As you said, that first half had a scoreboard that belied what was going on on field, even though it, it was interesting because it's not as though the Bulldogs' defence were holding up. In fact, Keith and Zane Cordy were being led a merry dance. It just happened that the final sort of um, finishing of work was not being done by the Tigers and the result was that they were down by three goals. Things righted themselves with that magnificent third quarter. Uh, you observed on uh, Footyology final sign on Friday night, Rowan. What was it? 20 minutes in, 15 entries to none against yeah. a team that was 6-0. and oh. It's and unbelievable. It, yeah, and it was 18-5 for the quarter. Unbelievable. And, yeah, Trent Cotchin pivotal in that third quarter with yes. nine possessions. But I thought a key finally was their, their ramping up of the pressure, which really forced the Bulldogs into error. And for much of the quarter, the Doggies were just camped out in their defensive 50, but kept 
under pressure, turning it over to that magnificently positioned Richmond defence behind the attacking 50 arc. Yeah, I mean, Richmond, once they get field position, it's almost, it's like a chess game. It's almost checkmate, isn't it? There was no way through for the Bulldogs. And at that point, it was simply trying to hold back the tide. Now, the tide came pretty quickly. We're used to Dustin Martin going forward and really being part of the dagger into the opponent. But without Dustin Martin, they still found a way. And some players that live in his shadow shouldn't. Shy Bolton is a star. His ball handling is extraordinary. He hits the packet pace. And what he does is difficult, but he does it over and over again. Their back line with the likes of Short and his kicking prowess, we know that. We know Basher Hawley has for many years given them run and drive. But did we know Nathan Broad to be as reliable and as sturdy in the air and on the ground as he has been, especially in the absence of Floston? Yeah, he was great. Yeah. uh, do, Do we... And I know that you are always on this, and, and I love the word you use, the, the well-worn trope that Richmond is 21 players of, you know, of, of good value and Dustin Martin makes them great. I know you hate that, and you and Richmond supporters and everybody watching on Friday night got a good old lesson in what makes them tick. They do have... They do have the most underrated person in football, though, Rowan. Who's that? Damien Hardwick. It's Damien. funny how we, we have celebrated the genius of Clarkson, and rightfully so, yet we seem reticent to recognise maybe the greater genius, as this seems even more sustained, of Damien Hardwick. Because a yeah. lot of these players were not born to be champions in our minds. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good call. He, he still doesn't get the kudos he deserves. We should have a very quick word on the Bulldogs. Um, I thought their defence looked a bit vulnerable to a couple of key forwards of height and strength, so that is a potential concern. The forwards set up, we've sung its praises all year, but Josh Bruce, a non-factor, and poor old Josh Shackey, and we did talk about this at length, but uh, he was just a non-contributor, and... Um, Luke Beveridge, a bit prickly about the prospect of Hugo Hagen coming in for his debut, and I will talk about that a bit later, but you'd have to think that's a, a Monty now because they need something a little more dependable, I think, than what they've got. You don't love Shaki? Yeah. That's my B-52s reference. <laughs> um, yeah, <very> <laughs> uh, well, if Tim English comes in, do they need to rush... Eugle Hagen into the side? Don't they go back to the setup that worked? Well, I just think that they've looked quite potent with three reasonably tall goal kickers. And uh, the other reason they need to, of course, is so that they can become yet another club to which an ever growing band of commentators refer to as a three headed monster, uh, quickly becoming the most well worn cliche in footy. They've got some thinking to do at the selection table. We stress it's not panic stations yet, but uh, a good reality check for them and a good reminder to the rest of the competition just how good this era is for Richmond. So uh, Cerberus, did, Cerberus didn't work. Sorry, Isn't I don't Cerberus get the two-headed dog? Oh, I, I'm not great on my uh, Greek mythology, I'm afraid. Yeah. Is that Greek two-headed mythology? Two-headed dog. Two-headed yeah. dog. Didn't okay. work. All right. 
Uh, well, uh, defeat for the Bulldogs, defeat for Cerberus. Uh, that was Friday night, pretty big, and a big calendar on the Saturday. Let's talk about all those five games. Saturday afternoon at the MCG, a big test for both clubs, Collingwood and Gold Coast. Collingwood, of course, in a fair bit of trouble at 1-5, desperately needed the win to alleviate some of the growing pressure upon an entire football club, Gold Coast, because they needed to back up what was a pretty good win at home. They need to prove that they could look as good and as resilient on the road. And much to the surprise of, I'd say, 90% of the football world, they did that. They did that and more. They ended up with a very comfortable 24-point victory over the beleaguered Magpies. Final scores, Gold Coast 12-7-79, defeating Collingwood 7-13-55. The goals for the Suns, four goals to Josh Corbett. Great game by him, and we'll have a bit of a chat about that. Two to King, two to Swallow, singles to Rankin, Ellis, Greenwood and Burgess. For the Magpies, a lone hand up forward from Brody Majacek with four goals, singles to Dacos, Noble, Grundy. Fair to say the jungle drums are beating very loud and clear, Finey, uh, not just for the coach, but for a whole side because they are now 1-6 in all sorts of bother and they've just lost to Gold Coast on the MCG. Gold Coast, that was their fourth win on the MCG, and I think now 14 attempts, and a very, very significant one. Let's not focus only on the Paiso. Let's start this by talking about Gold Coast, because, geez, they were impressive. They showed the week before against the Sydney Swans a all-court press feverish mentality to attack ball, to attack play with the ball, that was no flash in the pan. Look, by the end of Saturday night, and we'll have a long chat about Sydney Geelong, we realised that that Gold Coast win over Sydney was a win of substance. So they come to the MCG and they don't miss a beat. These players that applied that same pressure are as hungry and as fresh and ready for the challenge as though they had basically, you know, just continued the game against the Swans. Took Miller, underrated, hard runner, sure-handed, real team man. The work in the ruck by, you know, they've lost Jared Wicks. Zach Smith, I think, is ready to back up, but they're not going to use him because they've got other options. They've got who have they got? They've got Corbett can have a go. Graham has a go. Burgess. And, and Burgess has a go. That's okay because they are hungry for football. At the drop of the ball, David Swallow is playing as well as he's, I think, ever played. The back line is blessed to have the stability of power, bows, and this wonderful kick of the ball, Lacocious. And then they've got this guy, Jai Farrow, who's just a sort of spring the spring hill jack now i don't know if they're going to survive against all forward lines but they deserve the highest praise mate they really ben king's a beauty he 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 works far and wide there's nothing not to like about them at the moment 
I, I thought they were outstanding, and I thought the area where they really showed up, Collingwood, was on the outside. They ran the pants off them, and two stats to back that up. Uncontested possessions, they won that count by almost 40. And the marks, 98 to Collingwood, 146 to the Suns. So uh, that's a bit of a reflection on the Pies as well. Just didn't work hard enough defensively. But the Suns smashed them on the outside. Josh Corbett, I thought, was fantastic. And it was it was great to see. You could see his confidence growing with every grab and every goal he kicked. And, uh, you know, look, if, if they can get him teaming up and, and forming a tandem with Ben King, um, and don't forget Sam Day's out injured, so it's a different look for him, but one which could be really effective. He, he was terrific, Corbett. I felt so pleased for him. 11 marks he took. Uh, he took. <laughs> Took, took to Miller um, and ended up with four goals too. Now, a terrific effort by the Suns. A real, you'd hope, a win which really sort of drives them on to better deeds from now on the road. Um, we need to talk about the Pies, though, because that was disastrous. We've talked about the decline of their midfield. We've talked about their personnel. Are they just not a good enough list? Uh, there's a few pretty vanilla-flavoured sort of players in there, but I don't think can really add to their long-term future. But there was a disturbing lack of commitment to work hard defensively, and that would be the most worrying thing I I would have thought for uh, Coach Nathan Buckley. You know, 10 minutes into that game, I thought, why did I pick Collingwood? They really were undermanned and then underperformed with a couple of star players either out of position or out of sorts. Brady Grundy needs to have a bigger say on a game of football He's got seven years at a million dollars a year. If this is his first year, he needs to be beating Burgess and Graham. Uh, Darcy Moore, and really, uh, what in the coach's box of Nathan Buckley worked this out earlier? He was terrible up forward. Terrible. Mm. He wasn't leading. He wasn't making an impression. My check was doing all the work up there. He's a great defender. Put him back where he's... You know, at least he, he provides drive out of that back line. That back, and then there were players playing their first game, like young Poulter, um, McRae in his, what, second game or third mm. game. They're, mm. not, they're not right yet. The one thing that I did like was Dacos at centre bounces. Two weeks in a row now, he's proved very adept at that. That's something for the future, even though he needs to work on his tank. Um what you know? They still use a sub at Collingwood. The sub went out years ago. What do you mean? Josh Thomas does nothing for eighty percent of the game. Then he goes on the ball and has a good last quarter. Mm-hmm. He is the most invisible player. This is four four times I've seen them, and I've been shocked when I've heard Josh Thomas was playing. But then he finishes the game off well because he's got some run because he hasn't run previously. How I mean to go? How talk about the night and day with confidence in that bloke. Look, it was a disaster for them, wasn't it, Rowan? It was, and uh, there's going to be some massive media swirling around about the future of Buckley and uh, what happens now. Now, uh, very quickly, I'm going to say what I think should happen and what will happen, and I want you to do the same. I think this has to be Buckley's last year as coach. This is a group that's sort of lost interest in his message, I think. I think that I'm not a big rap for standing coaches, so I don't think there's much to be gained from him leaving now. I think 
they should announce by mutual agreement this will be his last season. And Collingwood has a very long and very measured search for a replacement. And people say, well, why would Buckley want to stay? Because it's in the interests of the club. Why would Collingwood want to stick with him? Because it would be fair treatment for a certified legend of a club. Will that happen? I doubt it. I think they'll stagger on, hope that they can get to the end of the season under Buckley and then find someone else. And uh, hopefully for them, the pressure won't continue to build. So they have to make an in-season decision because I think that would be a disaster. All right, quickly, your take. I agree that the likely scenario is that this will be his last year and he will see the year out. But just let's not forget... Alistair Clarkson, a couple of years back, Hawthorne looked absolutely abysmal. And then with the young players he showed faith in, they did show something towards the end of the season. Now, that sort of um, upbeat end to the year might save Buckley. You know what? In a way, I admire very quickly, I admire that he was party to the removal of three players that certainly would have kept them higher up on the ladder and out of harm's way in terms of near the bottom. Of course, I'm talking about Trelaw, Stevenson and um, Phillips. Phillips. But he seems to be the architect of bringing all these young players in, which he knows is going to bottom the club out. The problem is the message does not seem to be filtering to the other players, does it? It certainly doesn't. Well, interesting times for Collingwood. Interesting times for Gold Coast as well, aside on the improve. All right, that was the first of two Saturday afternoon games, one of them coming about half an hour later over in Adelaide. Well, this was a very difficult game to tip, um, but the final scoreline didn't seem to reflect that because it was all one-way traffic. A massive win to GWS over a pretty disappointing Adelaide. 15-16, 106, the Giants to the Crows, just 4, 15-39. The goals for the Giants, four goals to Jesse Hogan in his first game in those proud colours of orange, charcoal and white. Three to Himmelberg, two to Green, two to Reed, a surprise forward. Singles to Green, Hill, Kelly and O'Halloran for the Crows. Two to Walker and just two more kicked. One to Murphy and one to Murray. Well, quarter time, the Giants had a seven-point lead, but a very deceptive seven-point lead because they could not hit the side of a barn. In fact, it was one goal, eight to the Giants at quarter time to Adelaide's 1-1. They found the radar soon enough, though, and the Crows already five goals plus in arrears by halftime, and the Giants just continuing to build on that. Really impressive win by them once they got their kicking boots on, don't you think, Finey? Oh, they really could have named their margin. They were fantastic. And I guess Leon Cameron might provide some sort of hope for Nathan Buckley because there was a sense that this, you know, the wheels had fallen off by the end of last season and that they were in free fall. And the first two or three games did nothing to alleviate or change anybody's mind on that sort, on that, on that score. But now, gee, they're looking good. Uh, I don't like saying it, but they certainly 
have a different feel about them without Coniglio in the team. And there were issues with Coniglio and the coach last year. Toby Green is a captain's captain. Mumford played well. Kelly played his best game of the season. And how about that boy Taylor in defence? I mean, he took on Walker. It's Sam Taylor, isn't it? Yeah. Walker kicked the first goal of the game after about negative one second. Yeah. He couldn't have felt great, Taylor. And then he pantsed him for the rest of the day. The back line's starting to have a whole new look about it. Obviously, very different without Zach Williams and Heath Shaw, etc. No Nick Haynes at the moment. But guys are making their own way with Lockie Ash and Iden. Yeah, it's a different team, but I think they're enjoying their football as much as or more than they have since the grand final year. They really look like they're enjoying it out there. They've certainly got a bit of spark back. Uh, should mention Tim Taranto. I thought he was terrific midfield for them. Um, and Jesse Hogan. I mean, look, let's hope he can keep it up because they've conjured seven goals out of him and Himmelberg, who uh, really has got his mojo back. He's, uh, I like Himmelberg. You know, he's courageous, took a fantastic mark. Um, you know, when he plays well, I think he's a good barometer of that side. When he plays well, they invariably play well. They beat him on the inside and outside, uh, won the uncontested ball very handsomely indeed. But the biggest uh, lopsided stat in this game was the clearances. 17 to the Crows for the entire game to GWS 41. Yep. That is an absolute belting. And uh, it was pretty obvious watching the game that they had that dominance. They were able to, unlike some other games in the last couple of seasons, they were able to transfer that to the outside and some terrific run created. Yeah, some of those new faces are really making a difference for them. The Crows, well, are we worried that the Crows, after that really promising start, might now sort of fall into the sort of disrepair they had at times last year, I doubt it. I think they're they're more mature, and some of those kids that were debuting then have at least got some footy under their belts. But you know, lost a heartbreaker in Tassie to the Hawks last week. This one had a, a, a touch of the dispirited team about it. I just hope the next couple of games they're able to steady the ship because um, yeah, there were some disturbing signs the longer this game went. They've got a few forwards who know how not to get the ball, unfortunately. They look good when they do get them, the likes of Fogarty, Rowe and McAdam, but they need to get more ball and make it more difficult for their opponents to leave the back line. That, that's, uh, I think, a, a main source of um, a priority for writing the ship. Of course, Rory Sloan's been a big loss for them as well. Yeah, it was a pretty impressive effort by the Giants. I just, uh, you mentioned Shane McAdam. How's that miss of his? A comedy of errors with Taylor stuffing up for GWS, getting into a two-on-one with uh, yeah. Walker and McAdam. McAdam strolls into an open goal, tries to grub it, mishits the grubber so it becomes airborne and manages to somehow miss from nine metres out. That was one of the worst misses I think I've ever seen. Pretty, pretty symptomatic of their afternoon. Hey, talking about airborne, it's just a matter of time till Bobby Hill holds one and takes yes. mark of the year. Yeah, that was amazing, wasn't it? There were, I think, two or th- might have two, even been yeah. three um, uh, massive flies for a footy. It's going to be pretty good to watch when he finally holds one. 
Uh, well, credit to the Giants. They've absolutely turned their season around and who knows what's possible from here. Adelaide, got to hope they can, uh, Matthew Nix can uh, turn things around for them pretty quickly. All right, that was the two Saturday afternoon games. One game to be played in twilight. 4.35 Saturday afternoon under the roof at Marvel Stadium was St Kilda taking on Hawthorne. Intriguing matchup. St Kilda, of course, uh, been smashed in a couple of recent outings. Really needed to make a statement. Hawthorne. Uh, been very solid much of this year and uh, a great come-from-behind win down in Launceston last week against the Crows. What would happen? Well, the tale of this game, I think, finally written pretty early because the Saints dominated that first quarter and it was a dominance which would continue 5-4 to no score in that opening term. Very unhawthorne like but that dominance just continued and in the end, a thumping win to the Saints. 19 goals, 14, 128, defeating Hawthorne, 9-5-59. The goal kickers, four goals to that little energizer buddy, Jack Higgins. Three goals to Butler, finding some form after a pretty poor start to his season. Two goals to Zach Jones. He was outstanding for the Saints. Two to Max King, two to Membry. Two to Marshall, two to Hunter-Clark, singles to Caulfield and Sinclair. And for the hapless Hawks, only two multiple goal kickers. Two to Kaczynski, playing for Hawthorne. Still got to get used to that. And two to Bruce, singles to Henrahan, Lewis, Shields, McAvoy and more. Well, Friday, I know you watch this one very closely. I'll throw this to you. But I've got to say, I watched that whole first quarter and even... At 34 points down at quarter time, I thought, well, this is Hawthorne. This is Alistair Clarkson. They're going to find something and somehow work their way back into this contest. Nut wasn't to be. Absolute domination by your sayness. Well, to be fair, their way back last week came on the shoulders of, in no small part, Jake Romira, who was unavailable for this game. Wingard is an important player. There is a, a limit to how many of your quality players you don't have out on the field or in the case of Gunston, underdone before it becomes almost impossible to hold back against a side that finally got their act together. You know, during the week, apparently Zach Jones and Brad Hill came to blows at training, which was a good sign because they were both under pressure. Zach Jones' injury-interrupted start of the year had amounted to zero and Brad Hill's well-publicised poor form, had people baying for his blood. Well, they, yeah, the just heart. quickly, they yeah. interviewed him post-game and they were best of buddies. So, well, Yeah, and they were at the time as well. You know, this was just a, a fair amount of frustration being let out, almost thankfully, on the training track, showing that they certainly cared about their form. Uh, Brad Hill off the halfback flank was a good move and he was excellent. He really took the game on and probably, I don't know, 27 or 28 touches, many of them pinpoint passes. But his best moment came when he dived at the boot of a Hawthorne player to execute a fantastic smother. I think in the second quarter, people would say unhill-like. It was desperate and didn't certainly, um, d didn't necessarily 
uh, reflect the scoreboard at the time, but it reflected what he wanted to get out of the game. You know, I don't think Zach Jones was best on ground, right? His stats were brilliant. What, 34 touches, two goals? He was uh, great. Well, no, you're not doing full credit there. 37 disposals. Well, yep. uh, he had six tackles. He had seven clearances and a goal assist. So pretty handy. Yeah, St Kilda had a hard-running backman who was magnificent. He worked so hard. Now, I don't know what Jack Sinclair's numbers were, but he was simply outstanding with his powerhouse running and shorthanded link play. Kicked a great goal as well. Well, that's Jack Sinclair's best game for the club. Yeah, but, you 20, know, 26 disposals. For he Sinclair. was beautiful. Mm. But all of that was good. So was Bytel, Ryan Burns in his second game. I don't even know if he got a possession in his first game. He was that inconspicuous. So this was a good effort by him. But you know what? All of that piled into insignificance after, I think, two centre bounces when you realise how important Ryder and Marshall are to that team. I, I, can, I can tell you that Marshall and Ryder is a better combination than McKernan and Hunter. Well, just on that, I mean, the hit-out's absolutely decisive. 49 to the Saints, 29 to Hawthorne reflected in the clearance numbers too, which doesn't always happen, 42 to 32, the Saints yeah. way, and they won the set of bounce clearances as well. And, you know, St Kilda played Gold Coast next week. What a great challenge because they are, as I, as I explained, frenetic and a genuine test of, how's, of, of, of the sort of things that St Kilda failed at when they played Port Adelaide in Adelaide. So that'll be a great test for them next week. Well, it will be, uh, certainly be eagerly watched because uh, it appears like you just don't know what you've got. And a great test for Hawthorne too because they've got to bounce back from that and play West Coast, albeit at the MCG. But pretty stern test for the Hawks, who, like I said, had until yesterday been largely competitive. So good just response. Just on Hawthorne, yep. right, a couple of players. There was a big rap on their first game at Emerson Jacker. Yep. Uh, we'll wait to see. I think he's got something. He's got a beautiful body, moves well, but didn't touch the ball barely. Um, and it was CJ's first day off, and he was very poor. He got thrashed and barely touched the ball. Yep, well, a couple of guys that need to respond. Uh, well, not just a couple, a whole team that needs to respond against the Eagles next week. So great response from the Saints. Let's see if they can continue in that vein. Saturday evening, though, brought two pretty big games and uh, two pretty intriguing results. Well, the first Saturday night game we're going to talk about up at the Gabba. It was uh, two preliminary finalists from last year going head-to-head. Brisbane up against Port Adelaide. Brisbane, of course, without Lockie Neal. Um, that was going to really test them against... Uh, I think uh, one of the most impressive sides of this season so far, but a great result for Brisbane. They really delivered, I think, their best performance of the season and a decisive win over Port Adelaide. In fact, I think we can call it a thumping. 49 points the margin in the end. 13 goals, 15, 93, defeating Port, 5, 14, 44, the goal kickers, four to Charlie Cameron, two to Danaher, singles to Bailey, Archie, McCarthy, McLuggage, McStay, Pryor and Zorko. All single support 
Bergman drew great drew Willem who? Willem two. Willem no Willem drew. He was good actually. Uh, well, not much was good for him, so might as well give him a shout out. Gray, Wines and Woodcock. Writing was on the wall pretty early in this one, finally. I was taking some notes as I was watching it. Quarter time, the Lions led 4-5 to 1-2, so already a pretty handy lead. But the um, alarming thing for Port was that the inside 50s at quarter time were 18-11 their way. Uh, yet, unlike most of this season, they just couldn't conjure scores. Three scoring shots from 18 entries. And Brisbane's defence was superb. It read the play beautifully. But I think the pressure further afield from the Lions really uh, stuffed up Port's forward entries. They were often hurried. They were often a bit shallow and getting turned back and into Brisbane attacks pretty quickly. And kept waiting for a Port response. But uh, it didn't come. Brisbane were harder. They were tougher. They ran better and they converted a lot more effectively. Uh, and without Lockie Neal, really big statement by them. You'd have to be impressed with this win. Oh, it was bloody good. Look, I mean, Travis Boat didn't play for Port Adelaide, which is a great challenge for all those anoraks out there. When was the last time the Quinella in a Brownlow medal both went out in the same game as their teams met each other? I haven't got that. Surprisingly, I don't have that just on my <laughs> fingertips. Yeah, but, you know, obviously two very good footballers. Intercept marking early on in the game set the standard, really, didn't it, for Brisbane? Harris Andrews was brilliant against Dixon and also brilliant reading the ball through the air. The only times Dixon had a shot for goal, Andrews was brilliant on the mark doing floppy heads and floppy arms <laughs> he was and the, making uh, Dixon miss. He was the wacky, waving, inflatable arm guy, wasn't he? But <laughs> so well done. I mean, really, uh, I think he might have put Dixon off. Uh, <laughs> if he wasn't intercepting the ball, there was the courageous and ever-intense Mitch Robinson throwing himself where angels fear to tread. His kicking is sometimes unusual, but my word, he's been a courageous, hard-headed footballer. I thought he was great all night. And then you've got the other, well, it's Devon Robertson, the new boy. Isn't he a good player? Yeah, he is. So that's a... What happened to the... They had a blonde-haired Robertson. Uh, yeah, I think that was Nick. Yeah, that's right. He went by the wayside, but this Devon's excellent. And Danaher really put himself about, didn't he? Flew flew courageously a couple of times, winded himself, but was a presence as a big man, as was Marcus Adams doing well. I think, I think that defence really springboarded the ball forward and Charlie Cameron finally, finally has found his mojo and his motorbike, kicked a couple of absolute sizzlers, didn't he? That one where he had, took on... Fredericks, who's a good lad, isn't he? The, mm. um, the new player for Port Adelaide. Mm. But just had that arch of back and the beautiful curved kick. Very important. Well, not important goal, but real real sort of uh, nail in the coffin stuff. One guy I want to pay due credit to is Grant Birchall because I think uh, yes. his, his leadership in that Brisbane defence is always important. But he, he really played some good football in his own right in this game, ended up with 25 disposals, plenty of rebounds for him. And a great game by Hugh McCluggage, 
30 disposals for him. Uh, he had half a dozen clearances and I thought was probably their best midfielder. Jared Lyons, always very solid as well. It's just a good, solid, all-round performance by the Lions against a disappointing port. I guess you've got to ask, you know, is Boak too much of a talisman for that side? I mean, he's missed the one. It's too easy to put two and two together and get 68. But uh, they did really seem to miss him being there. It's funny. They The week previous against St Kilda, they owned the ball, they owned possession, but the game was played very much on their terms and it's greasy and it rained. There'd been a lot of rain in Brisbane. They were never going to be able to play that pinpoint passing game. And their game B fell apart very quickly at the coalface, didn't it? Unfortunately for them, it does look as though Boak is vital to their success. Maybe Powell Pepper, with more football under his belt, can help fill the void. Well, two big games next week for both those sides. Of course, a showdown for the power against Adelaide. Interesting that both teams, Collingwood and Port, that got caught up in the old eternal prison bars Guernsey debate uh, played pretty poorly. Um, might be a bit unfair saying that was a distraction, but uh, good test support in how they respond and a good test of Brisbane too, because they have to play Fremantle over in Perth. That is the longest road trip in footy, Brisbane to Perth. So how will the Lions back up what was a very impressive victory? Time will tell. That was one of the Saturday night games, and the other one was in Sydney. Well, having these two sides um, had some drama-filled contests, uh, one particularly we always talk about, 2005 semi-final at the SCG. Well, this was the same venue, same dramatic sort of finish, same end, <laughs> and the same result with the Swans winning an absolute thriller after being 10 points down with uh, barely three minutes left to play, uh, James Robottom bombing up for a beautiful goal to give the Swans a chance. And then that man, Tom Papley, bouncing one through on the left foot with a minute 30 left. But plenty more drama to come after that. Uh, in the end, a two-point win to Sydney. 14 goals, six at accuracy, proving crucial. 90 Defeating the Cats 12-16, that inaccuracy proving crucial. 88, four goals to Hayden McLean, really impressive game from him. Two to Florent, two to Papley, singles to Warner, Golden, Stevens, McInerney, Hickey and Rowbottom. For the Cats, three to Jeremy Cameron, two to Rowan, two to Close, singles to Myers, Menegola, Duncan, Hawkins, Dowhouse. Great win by the Swans. One um, bogged down, you could say, afterwards by a bit of controversy. Let's get that out of the way straight away. So two decisions or non-decisions. One, no mark ruled to Jeremy Cameron after uh, a kick, a quick hurried snap, appeared to have travelled at least 15 metres. A lot of speculation as to whether the umpire was calling out not 15 which I think most people insist that's what he was saying. Some people still arguing, as we record this, that he, in fact, was calling out touch. Um, I tend to think he was calling out North 15, which was interesting when the ball's still in flight. And then, as literally as the siren rang, James Rowbottom 
hanging onto the footy for dear life, being tackled by Joel Selwood. Could that have been holding the ball? I thought, I've got to say instinctively, without looking at the replay, I thought the not 15 call was correct. I recognise in retrospect it might have been, but gives you an idea how tough it is to make that call when it actually happens. I thought the non-paying of holding the ball was correct. He hadn't been held long enough as the siren rang. What were your thoughts on those two specifically, Finey? Ditto, ditto. Now, with the, it's, it's quite correct for an umpire to call when the ball is in the air, not 15, if, he, if you believe, if he, if he or she believes that the ball will land, you know, those kicks that go up in the air often are called not 15, allowing players to punch it on and not go for marks. That's quite common play, and I believe that's what happened here. Decisive call, no worries with that. And like a boxer saved, yes, on that one? No, no, just go on. Go yeah, on. and like a boxer saved at the end of the round by... You know, a bell that gets him to the corner and saves him from the 10 count. Rowbottom was very fortunate that he only had the ball for three seconds when the siren went. Yep, uh, definitely had it held off another couple. He might have been pinged and Joel Selwood having a post-siren shot to win the game. But I think, to be honest, Finey, this is a game Geelong will look at and think we should have won this anyway. Uh, more scoring shots, obviously. They had 80 more disposals. They had the inside 50 count very telling, 39 to 65 for the Cats. And Chris Scott did refer to that. You have that many inside 50s and that big a dominance in that stat. You should be winning 99 games out of 100. Uh, smash Sydney for uncontested ball by 70 and smash them for contested ball as well. Uh, which means also uh, kudos to Sydney for their resilience and ability to be able to come back from a deficit. I mean, they were 28 points down at quarter time, 2-1 to 6-5. Uh, really good second quarter by them, brought them back into the contest. And from there, it was just the bobbing of heads. Um, it's funny, we talked to, spent much of the first month of the season talking about Sydney's new game style, but uh, I'm not sure it suits the SCG. And a couple of wins now they've had on the SCG have been a bit of a throwback to that old sort of dogged Sydney bloods sort of ethos. And uh, in the end, it probably got them the points this time. Yeah, there were some real moments in this game. The first moment, by the way, if you're suffering from any aches, pains or ailments, get to Sydney and follow Tom Hickey to where he dipped his knee. <laughs> Was it the Bondi Baths? Because he's found Lords, the water of Lords, right here in Sydney in Australia. I mean, he was supposed to be out for eight weeks, yeah. not best on ground a week later, having you know missed one game. So that was extraordinary. By the way, he should be leading the Brownlow. Number two, they had the most unlikely hero win them the game with those last two goals. Callum Sinclair, he struggled a bit. But he actually set up both those goals. A brilliant grab out of the ruck and a handball to row bottom. And then Papley played it to his feet and the giant, he looks like a baby dinosaur, managed to pick it up and handball it back to Papley for the snap. Unlikely, really unlikely. In a way, they were unlucky because Brian Myers was playing beautifully in the first half, had kicked a goal, number of possessions, one of those players really stretching the Sydney back line, but he came off injured and replaced by Zach Guthrie. So in a way... 
if you want to blame anybody, unfortunately, you blame the bloke in the 26, mate. You know, two really gettable shots mm. late in the game. And that's what full forwards are paid up, paid for, isn't it? To kick those goals? Yeah, well, he's, he's uh, generally very, very reliable. So I guess everyone has an off night on that score. Unfortunately, probably um, helped cost them the points. Um, I don't know. Do you think people will think poorly of Geelong as a result of losing this game? Sydney, a pretty decent side. No, this was a, a hard-fought game of football. They weren't able to get much out of last week's star, Mitch Duncan. I don't think he likes the confines. No Paddy Dangerfield. Uh, they were good. They, they, they played the game out pretty darn well. And what they really struggle with at the moment is a ruckman because I thought Stanley got humiliated, humbled it at no bigger point than when Hickey pushed him out of the way and kicked a goal. So they need to sort their ruck out. Yeah, and uh, I'll tell you what, it's interesting uh, what lies ahead for either of these teams too because a real tough, grinding game, you think they'll both be pretty sore. And the tests uh, are even tougher next week. Geelong taking on Richmond on Friday night at the MCG, of course, the grand final rematch. And Sydney have got to take on Melbourne at the MCG. (laughs) Yeah, um, they've got to both pick themselves up and dust themselves off uh, pretty thoroughly because greater tests even than that one lie ahead. But a great win to the Swans and a hugely exciting finish to, uh, well, one of the most exciting finishes we've seen so far in 2021. That was the Saturday card, entertaining as it was. Three more games to wrap up round seven on the Sunday. Let's talk about them. Well, a Sunday card kicked off down in Tassie, in Hobart, Blundstone Arena for a North Melbourne home game and a pretty tough ask for a team yet to break the ice and bottom of the ladder, the Roos, having to take on the undefeated Melbourne coming off a uh, rousing win over legitimate heavyweight champion Richmond. So the Demons were up, not so the Roos. Uh, I think a lot of us expect it to be ugly, but it was anything but ugly. Uh, pretty decent performance from the Roos. They didn't get the points. In the end, class prevailed, and it was a 30-point win to the Demons. 16 goals, 7, 103 defeating North Melbourne 11-7-73. A win, we should point out, which has come at some cost, though. Looks like Adam Tomlinson is probably out for the season after a serious knee injury. Looks like a Rico will be required there. Bad luck to him. He's had a a bit of trouble settling down and finding his right position. Uh, Played some terrific footy for Melbourne this season. Unfortunately, it looks like it's all come to an end and he was suitably distressed sitting there on the bench. The goal kickers, well, Bailey Fritch, is he having some sort of season? Six goals to the Fritchster for the Demons. Three to Cozzy Pickett, that excitement machine. Two to Ben Brown in his first game for his new club against his old club. And singles to Langdon, Jackson, Spargo, Jordan and Oliver. Four, a plucky North Melbourne. Two each to Larky, Campbell, Cunnington. Singles to Zerha, Marnie, Atley and Simkin. Well, I'll tell you what, Fidey, I reckon the Demons would have been pretty anxious at halftime when North Melbourne took a 19-point lead 
into the long break. What do you reckon they were thinking then? I know what their coach was thinking, that the players should pull their collective fingers out of their collective you-know-what. Gee, they were absolutely sauntering around in that first half. The lack of urgency was frustrating, even for non-Melbourne supporters. I could just hear Melbourne supporters going, this is typical. We dropped the one that we never stood, and so begins the demise. But they are made of sterner stuff, and they came out with more intent in the second half. They took a while to shrug North Melbourne off. It wasn't really until halfway through that last quarter that Melbourne finally put the contest beyond any doubt. And I'll tell you, as good as Fritz was, the touch, the, the, the lightning again was Cosy Pickett. He was a point of difference of great excitement. And now, I think, just about the small forward elect at this point in the All-Aussie team. So improved is he. Ben Brown got to a lot of balls, not quite completing the mark, but you could see the value in the weeks to come, no question. Petrarca was not his usual punishing self. In fact, the best midfielder, clearly Ben Cunnington. Oh, boy. yeah. Who, who was it recently? Uh, was it Dunstall or Brereton that said he was in the top three players in the AFL? One of those two came up with that big comment. And I'll tell you what, there are very few players that get the ball as consistently as he does and dispose of it under high pressure. Well, the one thing North Melbourne managed to do today that they haven't been able to done previously was simply get their hands on the footy enough. And did they what? Ben Cunnington, great game from him, 35 disposals, 33 to Aaron Hall, who uh, I thought was terrific for the Roos as well, 30 to Jai Simpkin. In fact, four of the five leading disposal winners or possession winners on the ground were North players. Kane Turner also picking up 27. So simply getting their hands on the footy has been a big issue for them. And they managed to do it today. And no mean feat taking it up to a midfield group that has been performing right at the top of its powers and uh, is receiving rave reviews. So uh, good job, North Melbourne, today in that regard. Absolutely. Melbourne were collectively off to a point where you'd almost think that they had oysters for dinner last night as a team and got belly aches. Clayton Oliver, fumbling. Max Gorn made a couple of terrible howlers, uncharacteristically, and just wasn't able to get the flight of the ball right. Petrarca, as I said, not damaging as usual. It really was left to Bailey Freach, Cosy Pickett, and Jackson was a very productive player. Lever not great, but May, again, pretty reliable to get them over the line. Look, North Melbourne are every bit the development team that we thought that they would be. They are staying in games for a period and losing the handle on it, and when they do falling off the edge of the, you know, off the planet. But this will come. This will definitely come for North Melbourne. I think I think there's good cause for some optimism at North Melbourne, even at 0-6 with a bit of pain. Yeah, well, if they, uh, they know what the, uh, the equation is before the season starts, which they really did, uh, I think there's, yeah, there's good reason to come away from this one 
with uh, plenty of positives. By the same token, I think uh, ditto for Melbourne. Not a great day for them by their standards this year, but this was a game I think last year they could well have lost and they were able to steal themselves, come out. And like you said, they took some time to shrug North off, but they did end up kicking 10 goals to two in the second half. So they, it appears they can win in all conditions now. Tough games, open games, games where there's a bit of yep. adversity. And that's something we haven't always or have seldom um, associated with Melbourne in recent years. And just one special comment for a player who is very much a fringe player at Melbourne, made his way into the team and was very important when things were down was Oscar Baker. So maybe he holds a place in that team and leapfrogs a few others. So in the end, victory as expected to Melbourne, but not without a bit of discomfort. Okay, that was the first game on Sunday. The second one, big clash at the MCG between two bitter rivals. Well, another uh, clash finding of which you can say no matter where they are on the ladder because uh, form often plays little indicator of what will happen when Essendon takes on Carlton. I wouldn't say that was necessarily the case this time. Uh, both sides going into this game with two four records. Essendon, however, coming off a great win on Anzac Day and the Blues, another defeat against Brisbane. I've got to say, just up front, this is one of the more entertaining Essendon-Carlton games I've seen for a long time. It was open, it was free-flowing, it was high-scoring. Uh, look, defence wasn't at a premium, but the defences weren't appalling either. In the end, though, a game, I think, just decided by some cooler heads and a bit of greater efficiency on the part of the victors. And that, in the end, was Carlton, who won by 16 points, 19 goals, 9, 123. Great to see Carlton kicking some decent scores these days. To the Bombers, 16, 11, 107. A hard-fought 16-point win. The goal kickers, four to Harry Mackay, had his struggles early, but landed the blows when they counted. Three to Eddie Betts, probably his most prominent performance this year. Three to Owies in his debut. Great performance from the young Second kid. game. Oh, second game, second sorry. I stand corrected. Last year. I stand corrected. Two to Cunningham. Two to Fogarty. Singles to Cripps, Kerno, McGovern, Saad and Walsh. Four the Bombers. Five to Kale Hooker, that Trojan up forward. Four to Anthony McDonald, Tip and Woody, the excitement machine. Three to Harry Jones, really uh, promising performance from him. And three to Jake Stringer. This is a fantastic game of footy, Finey. Did you enjoy it? Very entertaining when taken on face value, which was two teams now with younger players. Look, Carlton came into that game, no Murphy, no Williams, and originally dropped Petrevsky-Seaton to substitute role. He came on pretty early, though. They had Owies in the team, Parks. These are players that very much are next-gen for Carlton. And likewise, we know that Essendon have been playing a number of youngsters and, of course, added Nick Bryan to the mix with uh, a good rucking performance. So it was enjoyable but frustrating as well because of some of the decisions by both teams. But I think Essendon really shot themselves in the foot with with the second quarter, I thought that they were going to tear the game apart, Robin. I don't know how you felt at the MCG, but just watching it, the game was there to be throttled. They didn't quite do it. 
I was disappointed then with a couple of players in the second half. Zach Merritt had a great first half and a good last quarter, actually. But where was he in the third quarter? You can't have a quarter off when you've got a relatively young team. And I, I, I've got to say that Jake Stringer lives in a world of his own. It's not a bad world, but it's a world of his own. With two minutes 50 to go on the clock, you take a mark, don't spend 35 seconds lining up for goal. He took almost the full 30 seconds and some on the runway. In fact, Cale Hooker got a mark and showed him exactly what to do a minute later. Rushed back. He kicked the goal, by the way, and string a miss. So there were frustrations for Essendon, but it was entertaining and there were promising players in both camps. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, th I thought you're right about Merritt. Didn't think he was as effective as usual. And uh, one guy I'm finding a little frustrating at the moment, actually, is Andy McGrath, who... Yep. Some people had his Essendon's best, but gee, turned it over a lot today. And uh, I think he has a bit of a tendency to unload without uh, considering his options first. And that proved costly. A couple of blunders by Dyson Heppel were costly, but I thought yes. by and large, he was pretty good. I thought Stringer was good value in the centre bounces for them. But for me, with my Essendon hat on, this was all about the kids. I thought Archie Perkins was so exciting particularly in that first quarter. I think he had nine disposals in that first quarter. Uh, almost kicked what would have been one of the goals of the season. Um, he was great. I thought a promising debut from Brian in the ruck. He looks like a long-termer. Uh, Nick Cox came out of it with a bit of an injury, but I thought he contributed as well. Harry Jones, three goals, some really strong marking. So these kids are coming on at a rate of knots. And uh, look, Essendon people don't like losing to Carlton, but it was notable to me there weren't too many Essendon supporters around who didn't have a bit of a smile still on their face because there is real genuine hope, I think, about the future, and that's something the Bombers haven't had for a fair while. But I really need to say, great effort by Carlton too. And one man who stood tallest in this game for me was Sam Walsh. He has amazing maturity for his years and for the amount of football he's played, and he is incredibly consistent he racked up the touches. He used them well. Um, he is an absolute gun footballer, and Carlton are really lucky to have him. And look, Patrick Cripps didn't start that well, but thought he really worked his way into it and became a real force by the end. Um, and I thought, funnily enough, Petrovsky Seaton, though he got dropped and ended up coming in off the bench as a medical sub, I thought he had some valuable touches, which might help build his confidence a bit too. Ah, the other one I need to mention, Adam Saad. It's funny, when a guy gets booed, as Essendon fans were booing him every time he went near the ball uh, and the boos become a recurring theme, well, what do you conclude? Well, that they're getting too many touches. I thought Saad was a really good player for the Blues, probably the best game he's played for them and showed exactly why they picked him up. So it was a win. The Blues needed badly. They got it. Um, they'll need all that confidence and a bit more though because they take on the Western Bulldogs next week uh, coming off a loss so that's a big challenge for them Just on the Blues spot on with Sam Walsh I've been critical of him in the last couple of years not that I didn't think that he had scope but I think I, I felt that he was being hailed a star too soon not now no he's really come on his, his endurance ability to run and play quality football is almost unmatched in the league and so valuable in the modern game. Fogarty was good, wasn't he? The yeah. extra long player. 
played well. And for all of that, and Owies was exciting. And for all of that, you know what? That man, Harry Mackay, to me, he's the one. He's the pea in the pod. He's a star forward. So when they, you know, when they put it together, Carlton is a watchable team. I'll give them that much. And they will improve when Pittenet is replaced by DeConning in the ruck. I, I promise you that much. Well, one of the more entertaining games of the season. You certainly got your money's worth if you're at the G today. Decent crowd for that game too. I think 54-odd thousand. So Can good. I ask you something very quick about being at the G, Rowan? Yep. I live close to the G, and it's all afternoon, or for much of the afternoon, I thought the heavens were going to open in some biblical sort of storm. You know, was there sort of a feeling there that any, any minute in that last quarter this thing's going to get flooded out, but it never quite happened. No, it didn't. And uh, I was under uh, a bit of a roof, fortunately. So had that happened, I would have been nice and dry. But uh, no, they didn't. And uh, probably, I don't know who that would have favoured. But great game of footy. Glad to be there. And that leaves us one game to talk about. And it was the big, and don't worry, I'm going to pronounce it correctly, the big WA Derby. Well, derby number 52 between West Coast and Fremantle. West Coast, of course, have won 10 of these in a row leading up to today. And uh, a big blow, bitter blow, really, that the two teams had to joust in front of no fans. A locked stadium, of course, with the coronavirus flare-up going on in Perth. So uh, that put a downer on it. It did also lead to a lot more speculation that, this was the moment Fremantle would break that run of outs. It was a West Coast home game, of course. No West Coast fans to make life uncomfortable for the Dockers. Uh, plenty of injuries on the part of West Coast. It seemed to be set up for Fremantle to end this run of outs, but it was not to be because West Coast, as they have a number of times over recent seasons, issued a very timely reminder of just how good a side they can be on their day. And they had a crushing victory in the end. 20 goals, 12, 132. A massive, almost 10-goal victory over their arch rivals. Fremantle, 11-7, 73. The goal kickers for the Eagles, four to Kennedy, three to Darling, three to Waterman, two to Brander, two to Cripps, two to Jones, singles to Gaff, Langdon, Petrocelli and Vardy. For the Dockers, three to Tabana, two to Lobb, and singles the rest. Collier, Frederick, Mundy, Sarong, Walters, and Watson. Well, pretty even first quarter, four goals each, but uh, and a high-scoring second quarter, seven goals to the Eagles, five to Frio. But uh, all one-way traffic after that, nine goals to two in the second half, West Coast, bit of added class, I think, really telling the tale in the end. Well, it was a derby like no other, wasn't it, Rowan? At halftime, they were on record pace. The previous highest scoring first half saw 18 goals. It was 19 goals at halftime. As you said, in front of nobody, no crowd because of a COVID concern and a late call by the state premier. Fair enough. And this game really was developing into a heck of a tussle until just before halftime when the Eagles flexed their muscle. And from then on, it was almost 
let's return to our traditional roles of master and apprentice. Before that point in time, Tabena had set the game alight with three goals, taking that second quarter by storm. Again, Monday, brilliant. Disposal superb. Fife damaging around the ball. All the while, West Coast are fighting hard. And as I said, it was the Twin Towers, Darling and Kennedy, just playing some power football towards the end of the first half. And also, as needs were required, Oscar Allen had to move back on Tabernacle. That was a great move by Simpson. He was brilliant in that role. And the boys up front did the job with plenty others joining in in the second half. One big standout for me, Tim Kelly, the man West Coast have bought to add that tiny little bit of cream on the cake of a midfield that we've talked about sometimes being a bit too dependent on the likes of Shuey and Yo, neither of whom were there. Well, what better time to prove his medal and why they got him? And he did that and then some 42 disposals for Tim Kelly. He was fantastic. He won 13 clearances and nine tackles. Uh, a fantastic effort by him and exactly why um, the Eagles got him on board. A great game by Tim Kelly. Spot on with Kelly. Most possessions in a game. Record pace for him. Nat Nui. He's a maestro, brilliant tap work right throughout the afternoon. And unfortunately for Fremantle, it was a very quick return to their position of underling in the derby. But one thing I like about derbies, though, there's spite right to the end. And Nat Fife had a bit of shit on the liver as the game progressed. He was angry with how things had developed. And I like that in Fife. He's a real tough competitor. Well, one thing I say about the Eagles, I think sometimes we can underestimate how physically strong a side they can be. I thought they really demonstrated that today. Won the clearance count handsomely. Um, how potent they are up forward, we know that. But 17 marks inside 50 told a fair bit of a tale. The other big thing that comes out of this game for me is Fremantle. I've got to say, yes, they've been impressive, but they've been impressive at home. Yes, they beat Adelaide away. Well, you know, uh, it looks like increasingly that's not too great a scalp. And the tale of where Freo are at for me is told by their win-loss tally. Their wins have been against GWS when the Giants were very much struggling, Hawthorne, Adelaide and North Melbourne. And their losses both on the road until this game uh, were against Melbourne, who we know are a very good side, and Carlton not so good. So... I didn't think they had the form line to be going cock a hoop about their chances of beating the Eagles. And uh, the Eagles now racked up an 11th straight win in the derby. Any thoughts on that? No, fair call. And we both tipped the Eagles. So we respect their position in the derby. But there were extenuating circumstances for Fremantle. I mean, they're down defenders anyhow. They lose Ryan before the game. He's their main man back there. Then they lose Ethan Hughes during the game. Then they lose Chapman, a youngster brought in to bolster the defence. In the end, they are really up against it. Chapman had to come back on with what seemed to be a dislocated shoulder and played courageously. So they'll welcome back the likes of Hamling and Ryan in the next couple of weeks. And let's judge them then, Robin. Yeah, no, fair call, fair call. And a good test for them next week too when they take on Brisbane. 
fortunately for them at home. But uh, Brisbane, of course, playing some great footy against Port Adelaide, as we told you about earlier. West Coast, for their part, they come to Melbourne to take on Hawthorne. And uh, similarly, that is a game that they should and need to win if they are to prove their credentials as a legitimate top four side. That is round seven, completely wrapped up. Leaves us with one segment, Friday. It's perhaps the best-known segment on this show, and it's one where we both get pretty fired up. On Footyology, the rant off. Okay, Friday, uh, I'm fired up for this segment. Uh, I seem to have been talking about football media and media generally a fair bit lately. This much is true. But um, uh, interesting thing happened after the Bulldogs-Richmond game on Friday night at the press conference. And it made me think about, uh, well, what happened there and a bigger picture issue that's been bugging me for some time. And uh, I've managed to combine the two in a not pithy, but uh, fairly hostile rant. So I'd like you to count me in. Three, two, let rip. I'm pissed off with my peers, Finey. I'm pissed off with Luke Beveridge too. Now, tackle the second bit first. Luke had a crack at one of my peers at his post-game press conference on Friday night, specifically our footyology colleague, Ronnie Werner, for asking whether the dog's defeat had Jamara Hagen closer to selection for his AFL debut. Beveridge said that he was sick of being asked about it and that if Ronnie had seen his press conference from a couple of days prior, he would have seen him answer the same question. Do some research was his jibe. Well, for starters, Bevo, it didn't matter if Ronnie had seen that press conference. The fact that since then the dogs have been beaten for the first time significantly with a forward set up that didn't get the job done and particularly with the guy picked instead of Hugo Hagen, Josh Shackey, a non-contributor, meant that the context of the question was now entirely different. Secondly, and this is pretty important, Bevo picked the wrong target. Because Ronnie Werner, unlike many of our peers in the football media now, Finey, I can assure you, is a guy who does do his research. And by that, I mean he actually watches games of football. Who'd have thought? Surely that's a given, I hear you ask. Well, sadly, these days it isn't. And that struck me again on Saturday as I sat there watching in one form or other all five games that were being played. I know Ronnie does too, because he blogs the whole Saturday of football for the age each week. And because he writes footyology's previews with punch each week, the detail in his work make it pretty obvious he knows what he's talking about. How many others do the same? Well, it's not lost on those of us who watch games, attend them, and go to post-game press conferences that there's fewer and fewer of us there. And that a lot of those who are there are relatively junior. Where are all the senior people? Well, there's far too many who not only aren't there, but aren't watching. In fact, in the middle of an AFL season, when the core business is going on, there's a sizable number who have their days off at the weekend. So are they sitting at home, at least watching on TV? Not too many, I'm tipping. That doesn't stop them, though, spending much of the week opining on this or that club, player or coach, having to be either dropped, sacked, changed this or that, all written or said with a sense of authority, not actually backed up even by their own viewing of the situations they're talking about. How do they get away with it? Well, often it's by talking to someone from the club concerned whose view of whatever situation will just be regurgitated verbatim in the words of the writer or speaker as though it's their opinion. 
How do we know? Because they'll sometimes trip up on the detail. A wrong player mentioned here, a wrong time reference dropped there. Given the general decline in media standards, they'll seldom be picked up on it. My point here is, if you're going to be paid to offer a professional opinion on how AFL games are played, isn't there an obligation to at least watch as many as possible? Okay, this is pissing in our own pockets, but finally, you and I still do it, and we've been doing it a long time. And we do it too, mind you, because we like doing it, not because we have to. Yeah, nine games is a lot to watch, but I'll watch at least six each week live and the others on catch-up. In fact, that task is even easier now that Fox Footy has started scheduling mini-matches, a 20-minute extended highlights package of each game. So what excuse do those who can't be bothered have now? Answer, very little. Beveridge's point about research on a general football media level is actually correct, but he's talking about the wrong situation and definitely the wrong person to underline his complaint. Name names, you say? Well, I'll say this. Ronnie Lerner is one of the last people who should be in the gun here. Who should? Well, you guys can work it out. When you see a writer or commentator holding forth on the big issues coming out of a weekend of football, ask yourselves whether you've seen that person at a game or at a post-match press conference or writing a match report or analysis of a game, or doing a show like this where we talk about what's happening in games. Here's a final depressing clue. It's a pretty bloody short list, let me tell you. But Ronnie Lerner is on it. He knows his stuff. I just wish more of his colleagues did as well. Needed to be said, well said. And you know what? Your clues should have nobody in any doubt as to who the imposters are. Well, it's just, it's ridiculous. I mean, can you imagine people writing about politics and not taking any notice of what happens on the on the floor of Parliament? I mean, you know, all that other stuff is means to an end. It's about the games. If you're going to be crapping on during the week, creating controversy about what happens in the games, you have a bloody obligation to watch them. Uh, well, you know, let's see if this sort of sparks a few people into action or out of their lethargy, because we might just start naming names if that doesn't happen as a result. All right, got that off my chest. Uh, I'm ready to count you in, Fonny. Are you ready to go? I am indeed. All right, three, two, one, rant. Now, I'll admit it, I enjoyed watching the football yesterday and I watched plenty of it, a la Roddy Lerner. Yes, it was great to see St Kilda not getting beaten by 90 points and run around the park getting one kick to their opponent's five. That was fun. But for some reason, most pleasure yesterday was taken at the demise of Collingwood at the hands of the Gold Coast Suns at the MCG. I was talking to a good mate of mine, Big Arthur, whilst the game was on. And we were both giggling like schoolgirls every time Gold Coast kicked another goal. They said, they're going to win. They're going to win. They're humiliating them. And I started to ask myself, why do I and so many other Melbournians Australians, Earthlings, have this innate hatred of the Collingwood Football Club. I mean, I look at their team and they're not dislikable. My check is one of the most hardworking, successful, rags to richer stories in the AFL. I love watching him play. Darcy Moore is a talented young footballer with a great social conscience. They've got players that are there to be admired, from battlers to champions like Pendlebury. Certainly no more dislikable than any other opponent of St Kilda's. 
So why do I hate them so much? Maybe it's their supporters. No, from personal experience, definitely not. Kerry Chalker, a great mentor of mine in Greyhounds, a Collingwood man and a true gentleman. My great mate, the late Al Goldring. Oh, I used to love the way he hated Jason Wilde. He couldn't bear watching him kick. Put Al into an early grave. And Al would say that if he was here today. Lovely bloke. And Mark Allen, salt of the earth. All Collingwood supporters. Even Joffa, who I became friendly with through Recklink, a good man. Past players are some of my favourite people on the planet. Peter McKenna, a sweetheart. The late Len Thompson and I formed a great friendship and I miss him so much, even today. Tuddy, hard to get to know, but a great man and a great person to be involved with and have a good chat with and a beer. Renee Kink in recent years has become an acquaintance of mine, a friend and a good bloke. And one of the best blokes I've ever met through footy is Chris Bryan, who incredibly played for Collingwood and Carlton. Nathan Buckley worked with him for a year at SEN, loved him, thorough and a gentleman. Even worked with Eddie Maguire on the footy show, had no problems with his professionalism. He's a, he, he's a top operator. Why do I hate them? Why love or hate Collingwood? I don't need to hate them. And then I worked out why, because it's their narrative. You see, Fitzroy was everybody's second best team and now they're in the bloody Amos. No, Collingwood think they're great, because they're hated. Only great teams are hated. Well, what I saw at the MCG yesterday didn't deserve hate. It deserves love. Have a guess who my new favourite second team is. Kana Maggies! <laughs> ah, good stuff, yeah. Look, uh, I infamously wrote a column about 10 years ago about why I love Collingwood and stupidly allowed myself to be photographed wearing a jumper. Collingwood jumper and uh, Essendon people have never let me forget that. My old man, this will interest you, Fanny. My old man, his reasons for hating Collingwood were uh, political. It was all about the Labor Party DLP split in the 1950s and going back even further, all about John Wren. So uh, different people have different reasons for not liking Collingwood, but uh, you're quite right. You have to be good to be hated. So uh, I, I think the last thing Collingwood people want is uh, people feeling sorry for them. Absolutely. No, spot on rant. Very entertaining. Hey, can I ask you, what problem did your father have with John Wren? He was a SP bookmaker. Did, you, did he give your father bad odds at a, on a Melbourne Cup in the 40s? Uh, oh, no, even that was before his time. But uh, <laughs> no, no, no. John, John Wren, uh, yeah, there was some pretty dodgy stuff oh, going yeah. on there. You need to watch that series, Power Without Power, Glory. Yeah, Power Without Glory. I remember watching uh, Frank Hardy wrote that. I remember watching that on the ABC. Yep. All right. That is our review of round seven. Really interesting round. Some great footy played. Uh, quick shout out to our sponsors, Finey, if you will. Uh, you got an urge for a burger? Why not have the best burger? Don't go, don't go down the ladder. Go straight to the top at 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. Andrews Hamburgers, premiers this year, as they have been for the last 81 years. That's a good run. And talk about good run. How about Nick Spartel's West Point Properties? They're really putting houses up, renovating and rebuilding properties all around in the southeastern Melbourne, West Point Properties. And thank you also to another official partner of the Footyology podcast, Stats Insider, the best sports data analyst in the business. Uh, they 
work on 15 sports globally. Some great stuff on their website, which is all free to use. So check it out at statsinsider.com.au. Uh, we thank you for your support. Check us out at footyology.com.au. If you like what you see, please become an official Footyology patron at Patreon, where for $7 Australian a month, you can uh, become one of us. Thanks also to our other official Footyology podcast partner, Stats Insider, the best sports data analyst in the business. Check out their work at statsinsider.com.au. All free to use and they do a great job uh thanks to your company uh you can support us incidentally at footyology.com.au jump on our patreon page and become an official footyology patron from just seven dollars australian per month all for a very good cause i.e the continued existence of this little operation hope your team had a good win this week if they didn't Better luck next week. We'll be back midweek on Wednesday to preview round eight. Until then, have a great week.